Hello and welcome to Try Mechanics Try Smarter Podcast, Episode 2. Welcome back to the Try Mechanics Try Smarter podcast. This is episode two. So today we're going to be discussing a few other bits and pieces uh, based on questions that I've had over the past week or so. The key one we're going to really discuss when it comes to the training side of things is about heart rate, heart rate training, why you should and shouldn't train to heart rate, um, when it's good to use heart rate and feel, and what other uh, metrics that we actually have available to us when it comes to training for running particularly and what else we can use. On the nutrition side, we're going to be focusing on what kind of nutrition you're um, best using before any long runs or any training sessions, uh, particularly longer training sessions and things like races, half marathons and marathons. And then we're going to be thinking a little bit about how weather um, impacts on the amount of nutrition or the types of nutrition we might use for a race, uh, be it shorter or longer or a kind of multidiscipline race like a triathlon. Then we're going to think a little bit about uh, injury side of things and actually going to go back to the nutrition. So we're going to think about how nutrition impacts or goes uh, t- together with injury risk, how we can use nutrition to reduce that injury risk, um, and then how it might be that an injury that was possibly not going to happen was actually um, adversely affected by what we were doing in terms of nutrition, particularly around the training sessions um, that would have actually possibly led to the injury. So a little bit of housekeeping to start off with Uh, in terms of news. The major thing really over the next few weeks is that we're going to be at the Brownlee Triathlon. Um, The Brownlee Triathlon this year, um, I'm not sure whether they did it last year, but they've got a bit of an expo running. We've got lots of different bits and pieces going on. Um, Basically what we're going to be doing is just having a stall, handing out a few flyers, chatting to people um, and trying to get across a few of the concepts that we use in our studio. So if you're at the Brownlee Triathlon, please come try and find um, find us, we'll be around in the kind of white uh, tops, white uh, with the Triathlon Heights logo, so relatively easy to spot. The other thing is we're probably going to probably along to the Ilkley Triathlon on the weekend. Uh, another thing on that is if you've got um, a valid race number for the Ilkley Triathlon or the Bounty Triathlon and you bring it into the studio in the month or so after the race, um, you'll get another 5% off. So that'll be about 15% off our prices uh, as a kind of congratulations for doing the race. So let's get straight into things. So that training question we uh, I got from Angel on Facebook um, asking about whether it's best to use heart rate, feel, and how you then essentially integrate those into your training. So when it comes to running metrics, uh, I personally am on the side of naked running. Um, that's not going around running actually naked, although obviously I do, uh, or I am known to run barefoot relatively often. Naked running is essentially running with nothing, running on feel, running on uh, the enjoyment as much as anything else. Now that's partly because of the runs that I do. I do a lot of my running and I believe in a lot of uh, the predominant amount of running I do is on trail. I believe a lot of running should be off-road. I believe it should be on um, relatively forgiving surfaces. I think that if we're doing, particularly if we're trying to do a high amount of mileage, there's only so much that we can really accomplish on road in terms of the impact side of things. Now. Can we negate some of that with shoes? And yes, in part we can, particularly with the more cushion shoes that come onto the market now, such as the Hokers, um, which I do have my own thoughts on, in that it's not really the cushion that's the problem, it's the instability that they then can create, and I think that sometimes not quite wide enough in the right places. However, the idea of using a depth of cushioning to 
reduce um, some of those things is actually not a bad idea. The key thing really to bear in mind when it comes to that is that uh, if you're using that to try and enable you to then do those runs on roads then why aren't you utilizing you know to actually run off-road um, and using the fantastic trails and uh, the grass and various sort of the uh, places that we have to run places like tracks that have a little bit more forgiveness but the key thing really is that um, when it comes back to the original question is that when you run off-road, you I run on field. You have to run on field when you're running off-road because I think if you're running and uh, trying to keep a monitor on certain things like pace or heart rate, then you're, a lot of it you're really losing the experience of running. Uh, running is an enjoyable thing. It should be taking into you know, all the environment around it. And actually, when you think about the kind of neurochemistry of it all, when you think about the, the development of something called flow state and the idea that when you get into that, that kind of zone and you get those kind of surges and endorphins that lead into better performance and more enjoyment, a lot of those come from taking in the natural environment around us. Um, that's why a lot of people do struggle to get into those states when they're kind of indoors, whereas outdoors uh, things seem to be much easier and it's partly because of the amount of input you're having from the outdoors. But when should we be using heart rate? So my personal opinion is that we shouldn't be using heart rate all the time at all. Um, when I do use heart rate, I use it relatively rarely, but I use it as a tracking modality. So I'm a big fan of something called the math test, um, developed by uh, a guy called Phil Matto, who's uh, been a chiropractic doctor, been around for quite a long time. And um, for those of you who know Mark Allen, who is obviously fantastic triathlon, um, Ironman triathlete, of um, past history, he utilised Dr. Matheson's methods for not only um, creating better nutrition plans and strategies, but also utilising the idea that we should be continually trying to build an extremely heavy aerobic base, and that we should spend a lot of our training training just below that what's called um, the kind of max um, aerobic threshold, which is kind of a math threshold, so max kind of aerobic function, and that is designed as being a rough. Um, guide to the point at which you then start moving from mostly fat burning to mostly carb burning. Now, the key thing about this is it is very individual and personally I don't like the formula that Phil Matheson prescribes which is essentially 180 minus your age. I don't think it fits with a lot of people and I think sometimes it can lead people into using the wrong number. The idea being that you take 180, you take off your age, that gives you a number, that gives you your aerobic maximum kind of aerobic functional number and that you train essentially just below that or leading up to that number. Now personally I find that my number that I'm given is significantly lower than my maximum aerobic function is that I can uh, run probably five plus beats a minute higher and still feel like I'm predominantly burning fat, uh, predominantly in that uh, underneath that max aerobic function. I'll tell you why in a minute, why I know that's the case. But there is there is room to maneuver in the formula. He does prescribe adding on five or taking on five based on things like injury. But I personally think you can use other methods to find that number. So that can give you a rough ballpark. So let's say you take that number, you take 180, you take your age off and that gives you, let's say you are 30 years old and that gives you a number of 150. If you go out and you run around 150, have a think about how you feel. So the way I use it is that I um, breathe through my nose. If I get to the point where I feel like I need to um, breathe through my mouth, both in and out, whereas I tend to breathe in through my nose and out through my mouth, keep myself nice and relaxed. 
when I move to the point at which I want to breathe in through my mouth, I've normally gone a few beats a minute over that, that maxillary threshold and I've gone towards the ventilatory threshold. So what I tend to find for me is that is about uh, 162. So my kind of math is probably around 160, which when I run at about 158, 159, that feels about right. And that feels that I'm um, relatively relaxed and breathing comfortably in through my nose and out through my mouth. And I, don't, and I feel like I can sustain that pace for a long time. Now, the way that I use that is that I have a short circuit of about a mile long. And every month I will go up and I will run a few laps to warm up. And they will, I will run um, between five and seven laps around that circuit. And it's flat, it's relatively windless, and I will track the heart rate. Now, if that heart rate or if the pace at that same heart rate is steadily going up, I'm happy. I'm continuing to progress in terms of what I'm doing in terms of training. I'm, and I'm happy with how uh, my training is putting together because at the end of the day, when it comes to running, if you're moving forward, that's the only thing you really need to worry about. As long as you're continuing moving forward, or even if it's relatively uh, slow movement or staying the same but only for short periods of time, then you're doing the right thing. I think a lot of people get caught up on trying to improve as quickly as possible and they'll get caught up into doing things like tempo work, which tempo work has this transient effect is it can, it can significantly improve performance for a short period of time because it, it gives you a psychological edge um, in that you know you're not normally the, the, your race kind of pace and doing race pace sessions is good for teaching your body how to run at race pace. But after a relatively short amount of time, the, the gains start diminishing and you've also done a lot of work. Um, at a relatively high intensity and sometimes you can then run the risk, particularly when it comes to triathlon because you're trying to fit in so many different things, you can kind of push yourself into that slight injury risk. I prefer a very, very kind of long, slow, gradual um, gradual improvement. But the other thing about the math test is that it has all these different inputs. It's an end point. It's a little bit like doing a power test on a bike. A power test, the amount of power you can put out can be can be related to lots of different factors. It can be related to nutrition, it can be related to the training that you've done, whether that's VO2 max level training, whether that's nice and easy training. At the end of the day, you're measuring your output, you're measuring the last thing. And that is what why power is so powerful, it is the end product. And I like to view the math test as a very similar thing. So let's say between one month and the next month, I lose a couple of kilos. That is likely with the same amount of training and aerobic capacity, I'm going to run slightly faster because of the impact of having the weight. So I like to think of it as the cumulative effect. Everything that puts together, what it then ends up as in terms of the uh, uh, essentially the end product. And when you're thinking about those things, that's why I'd want to focus on, is that then you can go out and you can do the trail runs, you can do them as easy or hard as you like without having to have a number that you're either staring at or you're looking at after a session and saying, well, have I improved? Because if you get caught up in that constantly trying to improve from one run to the next, at some point you won't improve and the impact that has on your own psychology is quite profound and the key thing really is to bear in mind that we continue, you know, you're trying to look at the whole forest, you're not trying to look at individual trees. So that's why I like that method of using heart rate. The other signs I like using heart rates are on the treadmill. I don't use it for short and hard sessions and the majority of my treadmill is probably over 90%. I use the treadmill a lot because I think it's a fantastic tool for gaining elastic recall or the appreciation of elastic recall and the appreciation of neuromuscular stimulation in a way that actually the track is not quite as easy to do. You can set exact um, speed targets and goals on the treadmill but I'd like it to be used for 45 seconds minute reps rather than anything particularly long and hard 
Um, I like to keep the sessions to relatively 20 minutes, uh, pretty much no more, um, just because of the possibly the kind of boredom effect, but also um, the idea that you're trying to gain that neuromuscular input and control. And as you start to fatigue, you're going to start making that situation worse. You don't want to be the same way as swimming, is it's always best to get out of the pool when you're too fatigued to swim with good form, because all you're going to be doing is swimming with an imprinting bad neuromuscular form. And the same goes for running. So I like to keep those sessions relatively short. However, I do sometimes do some uh, threshold and tempo work leading up to races in relatively short bursts on the treadmill because it's quite a nice late environment, often combining it with things like deadlifting and lifting weights to try and switch everything on so I'm getting neuromuscular input too. But in that situation, I will use heart rate. It's the same way as doing the math test. It gives me a marker by which to uh, keep my eye on whether I'm improving, whether things are moving in the right direction or whether things are moving in the wrong direction. So that's my idea when it comes to heart rate. I don't really like this idea of going out and running to particular heart rates, i.e. trying to hit certain zones, um, because I feel like we, we're much better. when Running is not really a kind of fully physiological driven activity. When you get on a bike, provided nothing's really changed, it's likely that when you push to the same heart rate, you're probably pushing the same amount of effort. Now that can change with things like hydration, um, things like caffeine, and various other inputs and stimulants and the environment, um, and whether we're outside, inside, and the wind and temperature. However, with running, it, you have all those things and more. So you have all those things, plus the elasticity, plus the shoes you're wearing, whether what you're kind of recall you're getting. So if you go out and work to certain heart rates, it's not necessarily that you're gonna be working to the same amount of effort in terms of the effect it has on your body. Plus also, when it comes to running, we obviously have that physiological side and we have the kind of biomechanical recoil side of things. And personally, um, I think once you get over a certain age, there's far more um, productivity from focusing on that kind of recoil and that side of things in the economy than there really is focusing on, focusing on a physiological side. I think the best kind of running training really is, is doing a mix of longer, easy, uh, relaxing runs that really focus on um, just getting out there, getting on your feet, making the, uh, the stabilisation around your joints a little bit better, a little stronger, um, but also at the same time um, working on all that kind of those connected tissues that just needs essentially time in the saddle as such. And the second side, I like people to do short, sharp stuff that works on the neuromuscular side of things, gets the hip flexors and all the small muscles firing, muscles that you wouldn't necessarily use in your daily life. And I like things like running up hills. I think running up hills is a fantastic idea. Short, sharp hills, longer, harder hills, because, because of the lack of impact and the fact that you do them in short bursts, you I mean you don't really get the physiological input, but you don't necessarily get the, the kind of draining carryover that you get often from the tempo work. When it comes to running up hills, there's no point really having heart rate. It'll go high, it'll, it'll, whatever happens, the aim is to get to the top of the hill as either fast as you can or be able to get as fast as you can and then repeat it over and over again, depending on the kind of session you're doing. So it doesn't matter about heart rate. So I tend to run predominantly on feel, and then use heart rate as marker to, to make sure that you're moving in the right direction. So I hope that answers your question, Andrew. If you've got any follow-up questions related to that, just let me know, and I'll try and address them in, in future episodes. So the next thing we're going to move on to, we're going to move on to the, the kind of nutrition side of things. So we had a couple of really interesting questions on this. Two very different questions, um, but they do have uh, some things that come together. So we're going to kind of try and integrate them a little bit. Now the first question is all centred around uh, pre, uh, pre essentially pre-exercise eating. Now the key thing is, for me, is that uh, I personally don't eat before doing any running in the morning. Um, 
I don't feel like I would want to run on even a remotely full stomach. The other thing is I feel like I don't really need it. Um, I spent over the last few years, or the last almost kind of seven, eight years now, I'd say possibly even a decade, I've been working on my, my fat adaptation, the idea of gradually increasing or, or promoting the use of my own fat stores. Now, the key thing is, is that a lot of people in, in the kind of this sphere have actually uh, essentially redubbed that fat readaptation. And the reason that's so important is because we are meant to burn a lot of fat. We are meant to burn fat as our primary fuel source with using carbohydrates as the kind of rocky fuel for when we want to go really hard on top of that. We definitely shouldn't be dependent on carbohydrates and we definitely shouldn't be consuming them to the level that we are. The other thing we don't really need is carbohydrates first thing in the morning. It doesn't really help. This idea of topping up glycogen stores is a bit of a fallacy. We often used to think that you burn through your glycogen overnight and your brain takes it all out and that we don't restock it and that's not really true. Most of the time overnight we're burning fats and we're actually producing a lot of ketones which are a, a, an alternative fuel source to the brain. We may be using glucose, the brain may be using glucose but often we restock it. The way we used to think about that is that the reason we thought in that way was because we thought, well, we're sleeping, we're fasting, we're not taking any carbohydrates, therefore we can't restock glycogen. Well, we know now that a lot of restocking of glycogen does not not need carbohydrates coming in. We're perfectly capable of, of producing glucose from, our, from proteins and fats, and we're perfectly capable of then restocking glycogen. Plus, to be honest, most people have enough carbohydrates in their diet, particularly later on in the evening, to restock glycogen without any issues at all. So this idea that we need to get up in the morning and have a big carbohydrate source is not really required, but also can be quite damaging. So in, in talking to the person on Twitter that asked this question, I asked what he was having in the morning, because feeling tired or feeling like you don't have much energy on longer runs can actually be due to what you're having before you're actually, if you're having porridge, you're having something with a high carbohydrate source, relatively low fat and low protein, that causes a big insulin response. Now, it's not really the insulin response that's the problem. The insulin response is there to get rid of all that carbohydrate and sugar, because even though your porridge, you may think of that as relatively slow uh, absorbing carbohydrate, there's no real such thing as a slow, absor uh, slow absorbing carbohydrate. A uh, slow, basically, a carbohydrate goes from being extremely fast absorbed to relatively uh, fast absorbed in that it's always fast so the the key thing really is that what you're going to go to get is, is a load of uh, blood sugar thrown into sorry, sorry a load of sugar thrown into the blood and then that will cause the need to get rid of that sugar now if you imagine you've only got the capacity to carry about a teaspoon of sugar in your blood and that porridge has probably got five to ten teaspoons of sugar when you consider what happens when that those oats are broken down plus also the milk now, the, the thing about that is that if you're throwing that all in, you need to then burn carbohydrates to get rid of it. So that's, we often think of that what happens is we take in that fuel source, um, that carbohydrates, and we will then start repackaging it and putting it away into fat stores if we don't need it. Now, the thing is that process takes a long time. It takes repackaging via the liver. The best thing we can do when we take in a load of carbohydrates is put it into glycogen stores. If there's no glycogen stores available, which there won't be in the first thing in the morning because they'll already be full, we have to stimulate ourselves to try and burn carbohydrates. Now, when we burn carbohydrates, that's a relatively fickle fuel source. It doesn't last very long, but also creates a lot of byproducts. It's not very clean burning um, compared to burning fats. So the problem is it creates a lot of um, toxic metabolites that... They're not really toxic, they, are, they can be reused, but when they are starting to accumulate, they, they cause fatigue. 
So the problem is, is that you then, so before your long run, you're now having this big carbohydrate source. You're forcing your body into having to burn lots of carbohydrates as you run. And that doesn't give you a huge amount of energy. You're burning through that relatively quickly um, because you've ramped up that burning to try and get rid of that sugar from the blood. So with a relative, within a relatively short period of time, you've not got anything left in your stomach um, because it's been emptied relatively quickly because of the, the carbohydrates. Um, and then secondly, you've not really got um, the, the kind of available fuel sources because you told your body you had to burn that carbohydrate and your glycogen very quickly too. The other side of things is whether there's a, a kind of hormonal side of things when it comes to when we're burning carbohydrates, there is some evidence that you burn carbohydrates for a relatively limited amount of time. Once you're burning through them quite quickly or have been burning through them for a while, whether it's these actual metabolites, whether they actually exist or whether it's just a perception, we then start inducing that fatigue. Whether it's because of the amount that we're burning uses things like the amino acids in the blood, which we know can cause central fatigue, no one's really sure because everyone seems to be slightly different on it. All I know is that personally when I switched over to burning um, or going out those sessions without having a big load of carbohydrate before, my mental clarity improved, my training improved, my longevity in terms of the ability to train long and hard improved, but also I was able to go out on long, uh, relatively easy bike rides for three, four plus hours without feeling the need to take in anything at all. Whereas if I'd had a bowl of porridge before I started, within about an hour and a half to two hours, I would definitely start feeling as if I needed to take on something on board. Whether that was a psychological thing, um, or whether it was simply how my body's reacting, I do know that the first few times I went out with having nothing, just water, I felt fantastic. And I was expecting to need things. I had a whole pocket full of flapjacks and various other things ready to, you know, ready at the go to use, because I knew that I would need them, because I thought after an hour, I'd probably start struggling. Three to four hours later, I felt great. Now, everyone isn't the same, and we do need to appreciate that. Um, but what we do need to really think of is whether that pre-exercise um, meal might be doing us more harm than good. The other thing is things like coffee. One of the biggest ways you can switch yourself into burning predominantly carbs, or essentially uh, switching over, kind of producing a lot of insulin that blocks the usage of fats, is to have coffee with milk. Milk is incredibly insulinogenic, as it's called, which is producing a lot of insulin. Problem is it doesn't bring any um, calories or any um, real uh, nutrition with it. So you produce a lot of insulin, that switches you into carb-burning mode, but then unfortunately you've got nothing com coming with it. That's why a lot of people do report sometimes, and I know I've had this before, is that after a cappuccino, maybe half an hour to 45 minutes if I'm exercising, I start to feel a bit low, I feel a bit lethargic, and it's because that cappuccino forced that insulin response but then I didn't really have anything coming in to replace it. So what I would suggest is maybe trying uh, to essentially not have that high carbohydrate meal before those long training sessions, possibly changing to something like a couple of eggs, uh, which is obviously much more balanced, but more protein and fat. You could even try adding a little bit of, of the carbohydrate with the egg or with some kind of fat source. The problem is, is if you have just carbohydrates on their own, the fuel source isn't gonna last very long at all. If you combine that with a bit of fat, you actually will slow down that emptying from the stomach. You may be able to slow down that sugar coming in long enough so that whilst it's coming in then you're exercising. Now, if you take in energy during exercise, it's a very different thing. So I do coach a lot of my athletes who are going out for kind of trying to get improve their fat adaptation. So maybe start off a ride fasted. So maybe start off a ride having had just a black coffee or water. But within, you know, maybe after an hour or so, they can start taking things on board. And that can be carbohydrates, that can be solid foods. 
because when you're actually moving, the difference it makes in terms of the insulin response is quite dramatic in that you won't thrive to load of insulin because at that point, as you're taking in the sugar, you're actually using it. So that why, that's why things become very different. Now, the other thing that becomes slightly different, it's really interesting, is whether race morning changes things. And there is a difference between a race and training, and that is in your hormones. That is in things like the stress hormones. Now, when you're producing a lot of adrenaline and cortisol and these stress hormones in the morning of a race that you wouldn't normally produce in training because you're feeling, you feel nervous, you actually have a better opportunity to break down carbohydrates and use them. You are using more carbohydrates at that point and then and therefore a lot of people that are more fat adapted have actually uh, described that when they go out for training they tend to have problems if they're taking carbohydrates before they train but don't seem to have the same problem if they say if they take the same carbohydrates in before they race and now this is where things could get quite interesting personally i do like to still go on the side of relatively low carbohydrates for the start of a race but i'll start to bring them in during the actual race itself and obviously this is ideal if you're doing something like an ironman uh, because you can take start taking things in on the bike and you've got a relatively long amount of time. Now when it comes to uh, things like half marathons and marathons, I personally do half marathons fasted with just taking in a bit of water because it, but it all depends on how long you're going to be out there. For me, that's you know anywhere between kind of an hour 10 and hour 20. Uh, for other people that might be an hour 30 to two hours or even longer. So you have to appreciate that if you're going to be out there for longer then you may be better served having something to eat before because it turns into a much longer training session as such. When it comes to a marathon, the same thing applies. But personally, I do believe in having a very small meal before those events that is comprised primarily of a bit of fat, a small amount of fat, a small amount of protein, not a huge amount of anything, but maybe a small amount of carbohydrate if you find that works for you on race morning. But I definitely feel like it can be worth testing to see whether you're one of those people that is better when you don't have carbohydrates before a long training session. So it's worth testing out, so having maybe, as I say, an egg, something to balance the stomach, so just to settle the stomach to make you not feel like you're hungry, something like a handful of nuts, and then maybe taking those things with you. So maybe taking a flapjack that has the same carbohydrates that you would have in your porridge, but you're able to have it while you're out, out on the run, and it will have a different effect. So I hope that kind of answers the, the question a little bit, something worth trying. Obviously, these things are very individual, so it's very hard to prescribe um, a, a particular thing. But it's definitely something worth trying and training as to, and trying to get out of that dogma really of having carbohydrates and, and things before you uh, before you actually get out and run. And what people often find it actually works better in terms of their training simply because they don't need to get up as early to go out and go out for an early morning run. I find now that actually I need to get up a couple of hours before races because I don't really eat anything. So rather than getting up three or four hours to get the food in so it can settle, I don't feel like I need to do that. So it's something, definitely something worth testing. If there's any other questions you have based on that, then please ask me because it's a big topic and I want to see, I want to make sure that we're answering it in a way that helps a lot of people, but also want to give a kind of individual response as well. Now the second thing we're going to address, and I'm not going to fully address it now because I don't think we really have time to go over it, is the impact of weather on nutrition. But the short thing I will say is that when it comes to weather, we obviously have an impact on hydration. The hotter it is, the more water we're going to lose. And if we are someone that does put out a lot of sodium and salt in our sweat, then we're some, we need to, might need to think about replacing that. There's not a lot of science about replacing sodium, but there is a lot of anecdotal evidence that people don't replace sodium uh, can often have issues with that. So if you are a heavy sweater and you do end up with white patches, it's likely you need a little bit more salt, particularly when the, the weather's warmer. 
The other key thing is that obviously if it's colder, you're not really sweating as much because you're just not needing it as much. A lot of people used to say that was because um, the sweat, when they're doing certain activities like on the bike, the sweat was evaporating too quickly to know you were sweating. But actually you've got to remember that sweating is there for a reason. It is to cool your outer extremities. And if you're relatively cool, you actually don't need to sweat a lot. Sweating is not necessarily a, a function. You don't just do it anyway. You do it for a purpose. So if you're not that warm, you won't sweat that much and you won't lose that much weight. And you won't lose that much hydration that you need to put in dramatically quickly. The other key thing is that when it's hotter, you do tend to burn a bit more carbohydrates. It's often the issue that a lot of pro triathletes find with uh, races like Kona is they do a lot of colder races, they may become very fat adapted and they get to Kona and they really start to struggle and they don't really know why. And they also try and take in the same level of their normal nutrition. So they, they take in maybe solid nutrition, they may be taking things like maltodextrin which is a horrible thing, no one should be using maltodextrin, it causes a lot of um, water to be drawn into the stomach but also doesn't break down that quickly either. They often find that in Kona the best thing towards the end or even most of the race is taking in things like coke, relatively simple sugars. But in other races, when cold races, they find they can take in things like maltodextrin without as same issues. And that's really because when you're running, particularly when you're running and it's hotter, you are going to be running at a higher heart rate and you are therefore essentially going to be, your digestion is going to be less. You're likely to be sending more fluid to the surface, essentially to your skin to try and get rid of more heat and therefore taking away a lot of the, the circulation from your gut. So it's likely you're not really going to be, break, be able to break down um, essentially those kind of things very easily. And that's why the other thing I reason why I think that fat adaptation and, and burning a little bit more of your own fuel sources works very well for hotter races. So simply because you've got less reliant on taking those carbohydrate sources in that can cause a lot of swelling around the gut. Things like sugar and maltodextrin do cause swelling as they draw in lots of water. But you also, because you're less reliant on that, you can go longer on your own fuel sources when you're in that hot environment. But I'm going to leave that question for another time just because it's quite a big topic. But it does change with those things um, what you actually then need to use. So you need to be a bit more flexible. And when it comes to nutrition, at the end of the day, if you don't want to take in that nutrition, you, it's either because you've taken in too much in terms of all the wrong things, or your body's just telling you it doesn't want it at that time. We have to be a bit more um, perceptive to this. Same with hydration is yes, we don't want to get to the point where we're dying of thirst before we drink, but also if we're not thirsty, then you don't feel the need to pile in constant water or constant liquids, because that's your body's way of telling you that it doesn't quite need anything at the moment. We often prescribe to these, these regimented carbohydrate and drinking plans, and it's not really the same for each person. So for instance, in a, in a colder race, you might not, not be burning as many carbohydrates, so therefore to try and force in the same amount actually might you do you more of a disservice than it does help you. Um, so it's trying to be as essentially as perceptive as you can to your own environment, but also listen to your body more than anything else, or essentially learn during training what you actually want to need. And then on race day, allow, you know, allow your body to tell you what it wants. The final topic of today, so we're going to move quickly on to the injury side of things. And the thing about this, this little segment I'm going to do now is that the relationship between injury and uh, nutrition. We've been thinking about um, nutrition as something that is for fueling, that is something for health, but it also has that big impact on injury. And why that is the case is because you need to understand what actually happens in a pattern of injury and what actually goes on in our tissues when we are increasing or trying to increase our performance. So essentially you can look on as training as, as really causing some kind of um, 
it's essentially impact on the body, whether that's psychological, uh, whether that's actual physiological, whether that's right down at the cell level, whether we're causing actual damage or whether we're just um, creating a lot of um, essentially kind of, to what called kind of toxic metabolites or things that we want to try and clear. When we create more of those, we stimulate the body to try and produce systems to clear them more or faster and uh, make the situation essentially better for us for the next time that we can actually go a little bit harder and go a little bit faster or further. There's also obviously the psychological side of that and I think that's all relatively intertwined and trying to prise that apart is quite difficult. When it comes to injury, we often see that there's been a pattern of overloading of a tissue without it being able to recover. Now, allowing a tissue to recover, particularly between sessions, is a really important thing. A tissue needs to recover and rebuild if it's going to um, improve its integrity, improve the connective tissue, improve its ability to produce either more force if we're talking about muscle, or stabilize better if we're talking about the kind of tendons and the ligaments and the other structures. And that, that takes not only time, but what it needs really us to do is, is move from a state of inflammatory state, which is what we get when we're around exercise. So exercise creates oxidation and inflammation. By producing lots of energy or uh, be able to use to run fast or do anything, we have to oxidize. We have to um, basically take those, those fuel molecules and produce um, and basically take certain elements from those fuel molecules, use them to create energy. And that creates um, free radicals, which is basically a molecule that has had a hydrogen ion taken away from it. It is now charged. It is now charged with an oxygen. And the oxygen is basically this molecule is bouncing around the cell trying to take hydrogen from somewhere. And that's why we have antioxidants. That's what they're there for. They're there within the cell to dampen these free radicals down. Exercise creates huge amounts of free radicals. In that is exactly what it does. So after exercise, we need to dampen things down again. We need to, we've created a huge fire and we need to gradually put it down again. And that, by putting it down, we allows us that, that period of recovery and repair. And nutrition is absolutely critical to this. This is the main issue with, with uh, a lot of people suggesting the issue with carbohydrates and taking on too many carbohydrates and sugar, is that sugar tends to be relatively pro-inflammatory. Particularly as when we burn both sugar and carbohydrates, we tend to produce a lot more of these free radicals and inflammatory markers. Now, when we they relate that to injury, we think, well, we need to get into a period where we're not creating as much inflammation. So we not only need to reduce the amount of inflammatory foods that we're having. So outside of training, we need to reduce the amount of things like sugar um, and carbohydrates that, that burn in that relatively um, dirty state. But also we need to think about how what kind of foods can really enhance the recovery process from the other side of the equation. So everything has two sides. Every equation has two sides. We're looking at one side of the, the things that create the inflammation, which is things like sugar, carbohydrates, things like fats, polyunsaturated fats, vegetable fats, vegetable oil, all those side of things. They create a lot of inflammation um, compared to, say, saturated fats or um, the it gets a little bit complicated because there's certain parts of saturated fats that do create some inflammation in the gut, something called palmitic acid, that that's actually dampened down by oleic acid, which is found in olive oil. So we want to have, when we think about anti-inflammatory fats and oils, a good combination of olive oil, a good quality olive oil and things like butter is a fantastic way of, of cooking, but also obviously dressing salads and all that side of things. But they're very anti-inflammatory when you put the two together. On the other side of the equation, you've got things like vegetable oils, which are extremely inflammatory. The polyunsaturated fats, the fats found in vegetables and seed oils and groundnut oils and all those sort of things, and particularly things like rapeseed oil, 
they're very, very inflammatory in the body. So outside of, of training, we want to think about reducing all that inflammation, but also what foods can we add in that add on to the other side of the equation? What are anti-inflammatory foods? Now, you most people when they think of anti-inflammatory food will think of berries. Berries are a good example because they do have a lot of antioxidants, so your blueberries, blackberries, etc. A lot of those vegetables, bright coloured veg vegetables, have a lot of these kind of polyphenol and flavonoid compounds. That's what makes them bright coloured. Now, a lot of people believe that they are antioxidants, and they're actually not. They're oxidants. And they are oxidants with just it's very it's like taking a very small toxic dose of an oxidant that produces results in our body producing a lot of its own antioxidants. That's the key thing. And that's why some people can react to those foods. Some people have allergies to those bright coloured foods, simply because when they have them, they create too many of these oxidants. They actually create an abnormal reaction to them. The key thing being is that we do need to improve, you know, include a lot of those things in our diet, but that's only one part. So you've got those bright coloured fruits and vegetables. Now, I don't really like a lot of fruit because fructose in itself can be very, very inflammatory. So I like a little bit of small amounts of things like berries that are relatively low fructose, but I don't like people to really use the kind of fruits like oranges and apples and um, bananas too much at all. I think having one or possibly two pieces of fruit a day is a pretty much maximum, really. The other side of things is that there's a lot of other anti-inflammatory foods we might not have really thought of. So things like avocados are fantastic when it comes to inflammation and controlling inflammation. Fish oils. The getting fish oils from either a very reputable source or having high quality oily fish that you don't cook to absolute incineration point. That's the key thing. If you, if you take a nice oily piece of fish and you sear it on both sides with high heat or put it in an oven at 180 degrees, you are destroying almost all of those nice omega-3 fats. So when you have those kind of oily fishes, treat them very kindly and they will treat you better, basically. So taking that into consideration, so the oily fish and the fat, that side of things, there is also a range of fantastic anti-inflammatory spices that are available to us almost all the time. And they are things like the curry spices like turmeric, cinnamon and uh, ginger are fantastic when it comes to damping down inflammation. They're also adaptogenic herbs and I'm going to talk about this on a subsequent episode because I'm actually going through a period now where I'm going to be experimenting with a range of adaptogenic herbs, things like ashwagandha and rhodiola and ginseng and using different doses of that to see whether they have an impact on things like recovery because there's a lot of evidence behind them um, but they have to be taken in certain doses to be able to actually and often we take them in really, really very tiny doses when we take them through supplement form. But the key thing is that those curry spices can be absolutely phenomenally good at damping down inflammation. And so incorporating those into your diet every day is, is a fantastic thing. So for instance, my smoothie in the morning will have turmeric, cinnamon, ginger in it as a base. I'll have a, at least a teaspoon or maybe even a tablespoon of sometimes of cinnamon. And that's obviously quite difficult to get into normal cooking. The other thing you can have is you can put them all together and put them with things like yogurt and a little dash of, of kind of raw honey. Um, which raw honey is also quite anti-inflammatory, and that's that's raw honey that hasn't been processed that actually tastes floral. Um, that's also very anti-inflammatory, and have that as an, as an evening snack. It makes a great um, post kind of training snack, or a um, essentially a, a train essentially having a as a dessert after dinner. Now, just one quick note: a lot of people have come across the uh, the research that suggests that anti-inflammatory antioxidant compounds diminish training adaptation effect. This doesn't work with those more, uh, the more natural anti-inflammatory anti kind of anti compounds and antioxidants. 
This was shown for having high, high doses of synthetic compounds such as vitamin C. That will block a lot of that quite quality, you know, high quality or required, sorry, inflammation that you do need after exercise to promote change and adaptation. That's why they showed it in the study. But when you're talking about things like turmeric, cinnamon, and these natural compounds, they tend to just keep the fire burning or keep it dampened to, to the correct level, as opposed to those high-dose antioxidants can sometimes put it out completely. So we're talking about two very different things. So when you're thinking about the implication of running injury side of things or general injury side of things, we need to think about that. We also need to think about the quality of things like proteins we're taking in. When we take in protein, you should be taking in a, a source of both the kind of muscle-based protein, but also things like collagen. Collagen comes from the, the joints, from the connective tissues, um, and this helps us then build those our joints and connective tissues. So having things like bone broth, like making your own bone broth couldn't be simpler. You have, if you roast a chicken, you take the chicken carcass, you put it in a slow cooker for 12 hours, and you've got bone broth. Put it in a pressure cooker for an hour, and you've got a fantastic bone broth. The other thing about it is that you can, you can get collagen supplements. If you're not the kind of person, I personally am the kind of person that when I eat things like chicken, I eat the whole chicken. I eat all the different parts and I eat a lot of the, the little bits of the kind of collagen and connective tissue that are between bones. I find them quite nice and tasty and chewy. A lot of people don't like that, so if you don't like that, then having a collagen supplement is, can be a great thing to add in when it comes to that injury side of things. So getting protein from different sources, but also appreciating that protein and those things aren't just one thing. And that actually when we take in those, we can actually enhance the kind of recovery process because we can, there's a lot of those things have molecules with them that direct them towards those places in the body. So it isn't a case of taking in collagen and it being directly put into collagen, but that protein will be directed towards that process. And if we are in a state where we are not producing a lot of, um, or we're, we're essentially having a lot of inflammation, we're not producing a lot of collagen at that point, that's when we can start getting injured because the connective tissue can't respond quickly enough to the training stimulus. Obviously, there's the other side of injury in that when we ramp up things too quickly, particularly in a, in a position in terms of joints and various other things that is abnormal to us, that's when we, or the other reason we can often get injured. So I hope that gives a little bit of an overview. I hope to be covering this subject a little bit more in a bit more detail. As with all these subjects, I want to give these first few podcasts a little bit of an overview. So thank you very much for listening. I've really enjoyed doing these podcasts so far. And thank you for listening to this second episode. And hopefully you've learned a little bit from that. If you have any more questions then please feel free to ask both on the Facebook page and the Twitter feed and I'll try and incorporate them in the subsequent episode. Thank you very much and goodbye.